Hello again, and welcome to Killing the Great White Male, episode 32. We're going to dive back into our conversation with Mel House about the sexual contract by Carol Pateman. We left off last time having kind of just gotten the bare bones, the lay of the land, for what a sexual contract, what the sexual contract is, and how it's constructed in this country. Um, so basically, who gets to fuck whom, and how they get to fuck them. This is the basis of the sexual contract. Um, so, let's do our best Patrick Stewart and engage. Um, I don't even know where to go from this one. <laughs> well, yeah, once I think the, the comment that I made was like, sure, Rice, I'll get in on this with you. Uh, if you want the, uh, the point of view of a you know, gender, non-binary, queer. And so, you know, going through the first chapter, I just like, I'm like, here's the eye roll that I expected about <laughs> plowing through this heteronormative bullshit. Um, but which it is to a certain extent, but then, you know, there it is also very valid about the, you know, cis-het male-female uh, relationship and this sexual contract, which, you know, we it's basically what our our society is completely founded on you know yes. we we had founding fathers we didn't have founding mothers yep <clears throat> and it, and they all needed they all needed places to put their penises and so here's where we find ourselves now yes I, and by the way this right here is also why when mel said well i'll read that <laughs> rolling eyes um i was like oh hells yeah we're, we're going to read this um <laughs> Because of exactly that, I mean, it, one of the <laughs> Sarah's TikTok thing has has every now she saves TikToks for me throughout the day. She like curates my little TikTok experiences, and then she'll show me two or three TikToks at night because that's about all I can handle typically. Um, but one of our favorite ones <laughs> this last week was from uh, this. A, I don't I don't actually know how this person presents, so I'm going to use the pronouns they. Um, they. Uh, they ask the question, so who's going to talk to all of us lesbian uh, lesbian tops about uh, how our toxic masculinity shows up in our need to be the top or something like that? And and this person just like stares dead on at the camera for like five or ten seconds and says, oh, that's me. Oh, yeah, that's me. So, I mean, and this is why just limiting it to a cis-hetero cis -hetero, uh, perspective the way the vast majority of the book is really it misses so much of the pervasiveness of this culture because it shows up even in these queering situations. Um, it's still so much pressure to be master versus subjugator. Right. <laughs> yep. And, and when, and also too, just, uh, you could go on for days about stereotypes and, in heterosexual relationships and relationships that don't follow the stereotype, you can go on for days about um, homosexual relationships, queer relationships that absolutely don't follow stereotypes. And, you know, but yet in every situation, yes, there's, there's somebody who wins and somebody who loses in every situation, no matter how minute, you know, 
you know, yeah. fr- friends that participate in, in activities with more than two people. It's like, well, the third person always gets cold at some point. So, yep. <laughs> you know, it's the third like, wheel. there you go. So, um, yeah, yeah, you could, you could unpack this for days. Um, but the, the fact that it was written in such a, such a cis hat, you know, white male, white female sort of, um, way, except for, you know, uh, again, going back to the part about the, you know, comparing the, the contract to slavery though. Um, yeah. it's like, oh shit. <clears throat> yeah. More unpacking. Well, and it, I, that was, I really appreciated that she, this was something like something I really loved about what she did was even in 1988, she did point to the pieces that um, she saw as as being crossover bridges, so to speak, from her very precisely feminist. And by that, I am going to read white feminist um, uh, uh, kind of line of thinking um, and I mean, I also have to acknowledge she wrote this book um, in very much the white man academy style, um, right. which was still very dominant at the time. So I totally get it. And, you know, on the one hand, I totally get it in order to be acknowledged, especially within philosophy. She, I'm going to guess she more than likely had to write this way. Um, it was the dominant writing style. I also like it was easily the whitest fucking thing I've read in the last year. And it, it turned my stomach. Um, but I guess the good news is I was able to read the first paragraph and the last paragraph of each chapter and get 99% of what the book was about. Um, (laughs) so for those of you who are reading for grad school, this is a first and laster. Um, (laughs) but it, but it, um, it, it was, I guess that little bit right there, her, her tying together the sexual contract alongside the slavery contract alongside the worker contract it it this to me was one of the most important things about this book was that it it articulated something that I've been saying but haven't had a like thing that I could point to which is this is why BLM is not just about uh, it's about all black lives not just black male uh, cis black male lives so to speak Right. Um, it's why the BLM movement articulates that trans lives have to matter as part of this. Uh, non-binary lives have to matter as part of this. That uh, gay lives have to matter as part of this. That uh, black women have to matter as part. Like when you go down the list of all the different identities that we've constructed in this society. That by the way, those identities, I swear to God, are probably directly due to the fucking contract theory. Because in order to account, and this is why we're such a litigious society, in order to account for the differences in our humanity, um, we end up having to legislate those differences, and therefore those those differences have to be named, and then we, of course, turn that name into the identity. Because I'm not just uh, a guy who works on pipes, I'm a plumber. So what I do becomes my identity because fucking capitalism. So... I know you got something to say here. I'm I'm just kind of riffing. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I'm just, just just taking it all in. And my take on it too is that that we are we are all connected in that way. And that this uh, what struck me first that this this comparison 
is vitally important um, to a certain extent, but also what struck me was kind of the sanitizing the sanitizing of slavery itself yeah. <laughs> in order to make this comparison. Mm. And that Say more. and that that slavery goes so much deeper than what is in this book and which I again I can I can wrap my head around why the comparison was made in terms strictly of looking at a contract. Yeah. But when you look at slavery itself and that people were physically literally torn from their lives, their places of being transported somewhere else and then dropped uh, the means by which that contract was entered into are so, so far away from the means by which a, a woman enters um, a marriage contract or a sexual contract or that a man and a woman enter into the sexual contract that I did appreciate the comparison, but I did feel like that it was, uh, it was sanitized. Yeah. But also, this is on this is on everybody's brain right now, right? Yeah. Um, BLM and where we are in this country right now, and um, we weren't having the conversations about black folks in 1988 the way that we're having conversations now. Yeah, and I think that's you know uh, just to circle around where that thought process came from. So yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, to acknowledge both those, like at this point in the 80s, I know I was being raised to not see color. Yes, that was the that was the prevailing the prevailing thought, right? Everything's all happy and good in Okemos. We're getting the best education that we possibly can. We're privileged. We're privileged. We're privileged here in Okemos, Michigan, which I don't know if you you weren't there that I think it was like another two years before you arrived on that scene. Uh, let's see, it was 89. Oh, another year, yeah. Yeah, so, yep. <clears throat> it was our sophomore year. Either way. Because we were the same year, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it was our sophomore year. Um, yeah, and that, and just to articulate, too, uh, for some context there, did we have a single person of color on our drum line? No. I mean, just so that, yeah, just to be clear about that particular high school's demographics, it was the rich white school, um, and everyone knew it. Um, so it, it, while we were being taught colorblindness, it was very much a thing that benefited us and benefited um, the people at the school, um, so uh, the culture uh, of the community. So it, it's not like any of this was altruistic or anything. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, it wasn't on the minds the same way it is now, and and I also like on the notion of how these things functioned, like at the time when slavery, you know, slavery as it's typically thought of, was being practiced in this country um, or perfected even. Um, it, I also want to acknowledge that the sexual contract was different because fourteen-year-old women were frequently sold to people they had no relationship with and never necessarily should have at age 14. Um, so I, I think that's, it's an, it's a whitewashing on multiple fronts when it's discussed in such sanitary terms. 
um, the reality of being a 13 or 14 year old girl who's handed to a 60 year old man and told you're now going to marry this person and he has sexual access to you for the rest of your life or the rest of his life. Um, like that's a fucking awful reality too. So I, it's, it's just terrible. Like this is contract theory. This is the roots of contract theory. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it, it even goes, you know, deeper than that, that it wasn't even, it wasn't even just, uh, women, uh, young women who are sold to men. Uh, I mean, the, for the pro- the purposes of rape. I mean, the men men were raped just as often for different purposes, for purposes of power yeah. and forced forced subjugation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just um, yeah, there's just a lot a lot that was left out that that you know didn't didn't need to be brought in for this particular argument. I just want to recognize that it was that the whole concept was very, very sanitized to make the comparisons that were made to slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And I can't, so I, here's the thing about this kind of analysis, because it is done on that, like, it's not even a razor's edge. Like there's razor's edge is too thick. (laughs) It's done so precisely, so finely. Um, all right, so how helpful is that? Like, it's it's that kind of thinking that got us sold on freedom and equality when they're not working, you know, because it's, again, that mm-hmm. kind of precise, like, in a perfect little world, perfect world bullshit, this should work, but it doesn't. Why do we keep planning for a perfect world instead of working with the one that we've got? Because when you plan for the perfect world and put it into everybody's head and people buy into the idea that if I just work hard enough, I can be perfect too. It just plays into the whole um, working, working to put money in other people's pockets. Um, but, but if the dream is implanted deeply enough, you'll, you'll, you'll work until you die trying to achieve, achieve a dream that'll, that'll never happen while everybody else uh, collects their money and, and goes to buy their seventh yacht. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, I mean, the, the shitty end of capitalism is what we're <laughs> late stage capitalism as people have started calling it. Um, it's very much, yeah, there it is. So God, yeah, I don't, I so much about it. I mean, just for this. So this little bit of this conversation is why, by the way, I won't use the term wife for my spouse, even though we, you know, as everyone sees us, they assume we're heteronormed and all this stuff. We're both far more queer than that for a variety of different ways. But I still won't call this person my wife because the term wife is attached to that old contract theory where women were exchanged for goods um, mm-hmm. it, so that. And, and by the way, sometimes it was, I will pay you to take this female human being off my hands. Um, so it was always about um, subjugation and power. Um, yeah, so, yeah. That's the source of the term wife, for those of you who still use the term. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I have... Uh, um... I have married a, a bunch of people, not me myself, but performing yeah. the ceremony and sitting down, sitting down and breaking, breaking down the whole like vows thing and how, 
<laughs> it kind of turns my stomach to even have to per- perform vows, but uh, but at least people are are starting to now recognize uh, the history of of just that ceremony in general and and how that's even evolving over time. Um, but yeah, I yeah, that's a whole different that's a whole different phone call. <laughs> <laughs> Is it though? Like. <laughs> I get well, touche. Um, you know, two people decide that they want to be together. Uh, I guess, I guess we've just made the contract uh, at least, at least made it look less formal. Um, at least uh, delude ourselves into believing and feeling that it's that it's less formal uh, than it really is. I guess because well, at the end of the day, you you still have a contract. And it, I mean, there's so many things about these privilege, these, uh, I'm going to call these contracts of privilege, because there are certain statuses that are gained through certain contracts in our society, specifically here in the U.S., that generate inequality constantly. One of them is the marriage contract. I would argue another is the status of churches. Um, mm-hmm. uh, nonprofits in general, but churches specifically. And the, I mean, so when we talk about the marriage contract, so yeah, we've, we've made the, and I'm right there with you. Like uh, when I was a minister back in, in Massachusetts, I refused to do, uh, (laughs) I stopped doing (laughs) straight weddings because, because at the time gay, gay, gay marriage wasn't legal. And so I was like, fine. I'll discriminate equally then. Here you go. Um, and it, it was really upsetting to people, and then they made it legal, and then all sorts of other things happened. But at the time, when I would do things, I would I was very specific about undoing that language because performative stuff still matters. Language still matters. How we perform this mm-hmm. contract still matters. And I also get that that privilege of, of attaining that marriage contract status um, for some people is the difference between f- eating that month and not because there is a tax difference, right? Yep. So, you know, part of me wants to look with kindness upon people that, uh, including myself, it, Sarah couldn't get a job until we were married, even though we uh, work within, uh, at the time we were both working within the most liberal of the mainline denominations in the country. Um, Mm-hmm. But they just couldn't wrap their heads around uh, a woman and her uh, unmarried partner uh, with two kids coming to stay in their parsonage. Um, so it these these things are very real. The problems are very real that are created around this system of privilege, and it goes beyond that because some people don't want one partner; they want two or three. And again, I'm not talking about the subjugated relationships where. Uh, one man has four wives. I'm talking about genuine partnerships. Um, why shouldn't they have the special tax status of marriage of three or four people who are like, no, we're all partners. This is this is our thing. If they were a business, they could go into business together. But we've specified that this marriage contract only works this way. Um, yeah, and not not only does it only work that way, but it works in such a way that people without that privilege are like crabs in a bucket 
trying to get to the top to get this privilege that amounts to a shitty contract, basically. <laughs> that it's, you know, it's basically like uh, a have-to contract uh, because it's been, like you said, legislated in. And we can't just be, you know, two humans making a family together, three, four humans making a family together. It's It's got to be written down. It's It's got to be a very visceral contract, which it's a have to and and crabs in the bucket clamoring to get to the top to have to do the same thing as as cis het couples you know that's where we're at like crabs in a bucket i when mel said that i i just about died laughing partially because it it made me giggle just cuz it's funny to me um but also because it was just the perfect analogy <laughs> Because that's exactly what we are. We are 700 million, uh, or no, not 700, sorry, that 7 billion is the population of the world. We're 300 million in this country, 300 and some odd million people who are scraping around like crabs in a bucket, trying to get our little taste of whatever's at the top, just trying not to be at the bottom. And that's the way our society wants us to be. And it's one of the most disturbing things to me about the work that we're doing. That's what we have to undo. The problem isn't that the, the, the crabs on the bottom of the bucket should be on the top of the bucket. The problem is that there's a fucking bucket and we're being treated like a bunch of fucking crabs. That's what we have to tackle. That's what we have to undo. That's the heart of killing the great white male. Asking why is there a bucket and why are we being treated like crabs? So there you go. I hope you'll tune in on Wednesday for the next episode. Between now and then, please take a moment to to jump on the Facebook page. Maybe join our Patreon if you're if you're up for being a patron of the show. But please do share it. Please do start a good conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon. <laughs>